Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Mod Path Chat, the official podcast of modern pathology, featuring interviews with authors and experts on the latest science, technology, and developments in the field of pathology. Your host, Dr. George Netto, is the editor-in-chief of Modern Pathology and the chair of pathology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Here's Dr. Netto. Welcome to a special episode of Mod Path Chat. We're fortunate today to be joined by Dr. Victor Reuter from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Dr. Reuter is the Vice Chair of Pathology at Memorial and a Professor of Pathology and Lab Medicine at Weill Medical College of Cornell University. As a leading international expert in the field of geopathology, his achievement has been recognized by numerous prestigious awards, including the ASCAP Cash Mustofi Distinguished Service Award and the ISAP Cost Medal for Eminent Service in the Advancement of Urologic Pathology. Dr. Reuter has served the Academy in several roles, including a tenure as an ASCAP president. In 1991, he established one of the earliest fellowships in geopathology at Memorial and had since mentored many, many uh, who are now experts. I'm proud to be one of his earliest mentees, and uh, I have learned a lot through the years from Dr. Reuter. Always a visionary, Dr. Reuter was one of the earliest anatomic pathologists to embrace and advance the genomic and more recently the digital transformation of our field. Thank you, Dr. Reuter, for accepting my invitation. Thank you, George. It's a pleasure to speak to you tonight. In the next few minutes, as you know, 15 to 20 minutes, I, uh, I'm looking forward to hear your uh, vision and your perspective on, on uh, digital pathology. I know uh, we can do several episodes on that and on the other great uh, contributions you've had to the field, but let's focus today on digital paths. And let's start with some historical notes. So when did you get interested in this and, and why and what happened? How did it start? Um, as usual, as everything in my career is all a coincidence, you know, it's one of those things uh, you bump against one wall and then you bounce to another wall, etc. So in 1998, uh, I became acting chief of surgical pathology at, John, at Memorial, and uh, I was pretty much uh, in charge of technology innovation. So in those days, well, as you know, surgical pathology is a very manual discipline. We do the cutting the tissue, putting the blocks, processing, 
embedding it, cutting it, staining it, deparaffinizing it, etc. So my idea was to automate the laboratory as much as possible. Well, you know, digital pathology is nothing but automation. So in somewhere around 2006, we started seeing some excitement in this area, started with the company Bacchus and Olympus and some other companies, including Demetrics, a pathologist who was a GU pathologist, Dr. Ron Weinstein from the University of Arizona, was a pioneer in the area of digital pathology, started a company called Demetrics, who I visited everybody, because the whole idea was, how do we better quantify a signal? And you would think that you would have to do it in an objective mathematical way. So obviously, if you digitize the image, and then you can measure and maybe turn immunohistochemistries from something that is subjective to objective quantitative. So that was really the genesis of all of this. Um, we visited all of the uh, all of the companies, we decided to go with one, and we started using it and then trying to see how it fit into the laboratory. The problem was that in those days, we were not barcoding the slides. So from a point of view of following it and really being able to annotate the data, it was very difficult. So within 2012, we were not an early starter there. We started barcoding, and now we started understanding how we could put together an entire case using barcodes and in the information from every block. So move on forward, and we have new technologies, better technologies, faster scanning, et cetera. And suddenly we find ourselves in 2016, 2015, with a chairman that embraced the concept of digital pathology, and that was David Klemstra. And together with Mira Hamid, the chief of surgical pathology, we we convinced the institution of what the return on investment was. Mm. And the return on investment is not always financial. It's also enabling. So, for example, in an institution that has multiple hospitals, to be able to consult with each other, to be able to sign out cases or look at cases remotely from one site to the other, to be able to share offices and look at cases, et cetera, to do uh, quality assurance. So we spun it in a way in which we really focused on quality of care and extended ability of the mothership laboratory to other institutions, to other spokes in the wheel. And that's how we were able to grow the system. But of course, we learned along the way. Early adopters always pay a price. Mm -hmm. The price is by making mistakes and the price is maybe spending a little bit more time and effort and a little bit more money into be able to streamline the operation. And what we've learned is that really for this to be successful, you have to create an ecosystem. It's not a question of buying hardware. The question is, for example, displays of high resolution enough that you're going to be able to look at images with high fidelity that you're going to be able to have displays that are large enough that you see enough of the image at enough of a magnification, that you're going to be able to have a system in which you can visualize the images within your laboratory information system, that you're going to be able to use viewers that accept not only one file format size or type, not size, type, 
Because what if you want to buy a, a, a hardware from another company several down years down the road? You want to be able to look and use them and be able to pull them up in the same browser. So you need a file type agnostic or what's called a universal browser to do this. How do you put the cases together as a case? How do you let the pathologist or the fellow or the resident know the case is ready for you to be viewed? So there's so many pieces that had to come together. And that's why you have to create an ecosystem for this really to work. Uh, and we have. And we're, it's not perfect. It's still nascent. We are scanning approximately consistently over 30,000 slides a week, over 125, yes, over 125,000 slides a month. Our digital repository now is well over 4.5 million slides. We are scanning forward as well as backward to the first day that we started barcoding, which is about 2012. So ultimately, we are going to have all of that material. And you know how prized that is because this material, now you have annotated clinical data. So you're going to be able to digitize the slides. You don't have to pull the slides from the form, from the file, from your repository to know which one you want to send. For example, get the, a block to send for genomic analysis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So once you digitize the slides, for example, our biopsies, let's assume that the patient had a biopsy six months ago and you want to see it and you say, tell the resident, pull these slides from me. Well, you don't have to do that. So our number of recalls or requests to our archive to pull slides from our archive now is down by 94%. Think of the return on investment regarding FTEs. Now you can repurpose these people to do other functions within the laboratory. And also the time saving you can... It's time saving and financial saving. Now, for example, in New York, storage, every square foot costs you a lot of money. So now you can still remotely, right? Because you're not going to be requesting the slides back because the chances are that you're going to already have digitized them. So you see that the return on investment is quality of care, it's efficiencies, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a no-brainer, George. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. And it is our responsibility to convince our institutions of what the return on investment is, the efficiencies, and also the quality of care and safety over time. Wonderful. Uh, you, uh, you already have touched on, on, on the next uh, portion of, uh, of, of discussion, which is where we are now. And, and you can use your institution as an example. And, and you've mentioned some of, some of these. But how do you see the field of digital path right now? What's really uh, being used, even in terms of solutions, uh, FDA approved or not, uh, in terms of integration uh, in the departments that we're uh, leading the wave, including yours? So there are there are roadblocks. And one of the great roadblocks, of course, is creating that ecosystem that I talked about. That's financially, uh, you know, that's, that's a lot of money. 
and it takes also a lot of uh, people resources and administrative resources to be able to get all of these things together. So that I think is the greatest barrier. The second barrier is also the fact that pathologists in general uh, are very conservative human beings and they love their microscope. I love my microscope too, but I see the future. So um, you can have the microscope. For example, one of the things that it can enable, let's say, let's say for example, that I have all the biopsies that have been scanned. In, in GU, we scan all biopsies as we do in every other field in our department. They're scanned every morning they come out, they're scanned by 10 o'clock in the morning, 95% of all slides are scanned. So in theory, I can review those biopsies from wherever. Uh, let's say a pathologist feels a little bit uncertain. The slides are still available. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in my experience, about in one in 10 of sets of prostate needle biopsies, not one in 10 pieces of tissue, but cases, Mm -hmm. I might want to review one of the parts. So those slides are available. So I can look at the entire case, write all the synoptic report. And then when I go to the hospital tomorrow, I'll just review that one slide or two slides make up my mind and sign out the case. And for the ones that I have no problem with, I can sign them out from my home. So where we are now is in the process of enabling this technology for pathologists to use it to their benefit. We're not going to force anybody to do this. We are going to create all the tools necessary for them then to use it, how it fits into their practice. There will be chairs out there that will say, Next July 17th, we're going to convert entirely to digital. They will not be very popular with pathologists, but there will be some that will do that. But right now, where we are is we're scanning a lot of material. We're trying to do it in a time-sensitive fashion. We are trying to make sure that uh, the pathologist, that we create an infrastructure of of, of um scanning more and more cases complete so that they have the ability from their office or from their home or from another satellite of the institution to review those cases. So that's where we are now. And different institutions are at different levels. And what I've noticed is that some institutions that are leaders that have a lot of experience, I think Anil Parwani is a good example at at Ohio State University. I think he's a very good example of of a leader, a pioneer who's doing a lot of this stuff. And other institutions are now putting their feet, their toes in the water. And they're going to the meetings, they're listening to the lectures to see how this might fit into into their workplace. So I think that's where we are now. So it's all about the digital images and the cases that are being archived and creating that ecosystem that I was talking about. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So uh, just uh, interested in, in knowing, you mentioned like one out of 10 sets of biopsies you feel, maybe there is a slide you want to review. Usually what's, what's the reason for that? Is degree of comfort or clearly you, you should be very comfortable with, with reading off screen, but, but well, is it that the scanning wasn't good in that area or what, what well, is? We, there are scanning problems and I, we're not going to go into detail of, of, you know, of QA pro, post and pre imaging and things like that. But as you know, in our slides, we have folds as well. So Correct. sometimes we have problems or poorly fragmented tissue, but let me give you a couple of examples in prostate cancer. You have an introductal lesion and you're wondering if this is florid high grade PIA and a typical cribriform hyperplasia or introductal carcinoma. That might be one. Let me give you another one. You have an atypical small acid proliferation associated with inflammation. You might want to take a better look at an area like mm -hmm. that. So those are just two examples of, uh, you know, atypical it glands just, in an area of a fold. You know, they're, they're it usually, gives you a better feel still. It, it, well, I mean, it's still, I mean, we're learning as what, you know, it's like Correct. everybody else. In, in those areas, I might want to ask for a recut. I might want to make a definitive decision. I might make the ultimate decision. Yes, I want to order stains. But if I'm doing it remotely, I can already be uh, ordering the stains. So when I come to the office next day, the stains will be ready. So again, it's going to be more efficient. Excellent. And uh, and this may be, you know, it bridges uh, the... Uh, the timelines of current versus futures, those uh, those solutions that that uh, now are coming up for, be it uh, immunohistochemical or biomarker for breast biopsy or for prostate biopsy, you know, assisting the pathologist, or even for integration of workflow. Like uh, the last episode was with a group from Oxford talking about uh, integrating where the scan slides, the AI program will will order the pin four on the atypical foci for you by the time by the time it, the slides make it to you the immunohistochemistry has been ordered it's not perfect yet but are these do you see these more and more becoming the norm or uh, is it a hype should we invest uh, in those solutions as you know they're not cheap yes uh, well first of all we have to create the infrastructure as we talked and then you know that is the now so now i mean right now to the next year or two 
But where the science is going is really in annotations, in machine learning, in artificial intelligence. So the low-hanging fruit is identifying the cancer, minimal um, metastatic disease. You know how how much time cons uh, consumption there is in looking at all the lymph nodes Levels. at relatively high power, looking for those four or five glands. If you develop an ag algorithm that can do for that, it might be tumor type agnostic because metastatic breast cancer looks good at, close enough to metastatic gastric cancer, close enough to metastatic colonic cancer that, you know, you could have maybe a tumor type agnostic type algorithm. Yes, I think that's a possibility. The other ones that companies like Ibis and, and Google and Page AI that are developing of identifying the cancer, minimal cancer, identifying the cancer and measuring the cancer, hmm. telling you the percentage of the core that is involved. As you know, many of the cores are actually not linear. So you have to sort of move around. Developing algorithms that measure for you is not that difficult. And then telling you what percentage of the tumor is, grading the tumor, for example, telling you how much is grade four and five once the algorithms you trust that they're grading correctly. All of these things are um, possible. CIS versus reactive changes in the urethelium. And when you wow. say about ordering immunos ahead of time, that is in the future and it might be there, but we're going to have to be very involved in doing that because if we trust it too much, because you want something to be sensitive and not specific, right? So you want it to err on the side of overhauling. But so that's overordering. Correct. So that's order. So as a chairman, you know Correct. that that's not good. And we discussed that uh, exactly yeah. in that. So so we have we have a very important part in selecting which are going to be the next tools that people should work on and that we should trust. And I would push that one a little bit more into the future. But yes, it's coming. But a lot of other things. Um, for example, why should be quantified? Why should we be quantifying her too? Why? Why should we be quantifying MIB? Why should we be quantifying ER and PR? The what machine the should do it. What are the chances of you and I agreeing within one standard devi deviation if we do 20 cases in a row? There's probably a good chance that we might not. So by developing algorithms that we can trust and validate, we are leveling the playing field. And ultimately, if we do that, and we correlate it not to me, oh, the algorithm agreed with Victor, so what? What we have to correlate is it's with outcome. genomics and outcome and response to therapy. So now you're pushing it farther along. So that is where we are to make sure that the ultimate goal is the patient, so that we do all these things in a clinically validated and well-designed study manner so that we really develop tools. And once we do that, the pathologist becomes a monster because now he has all these tools available to him that make him more efficient, 
that level the playing field with a pathologist in the community setting, small academic center that has only one specialist in each division and multiple specialists that can show cases to each other within one discipline, lay, leveling the, the playing field. And, and what does that do? Quality. It helps the patient quality yeah. of care. So we keep the focus on that. And again, all of the things might think like Star Wars, George, it's a matter of if. It's a, not a matter of when. If you look at the things and you follow the science of what these uh, information scientists, the computational pathologists and people, what they're working on, Amazing. we as pathologists are not hearing about that because we don't ask them to come because it looks like like science. It looks like too much Star Wars, but it's not. And they're working on things that ultimately are going to help us tremendously. Absolutely. But as long as we're working together, I think that's... Well, we, no, we have to work together. But, 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 but think about this, George. And this is why you as a chairman that are young enough to be able to influence the American Board of Pathology have a role. What is, what is our role in designing the, what a pathologist is going to be Does. educated for and tested with in the next in the next five to 10 years. What is the curriculum in a residency program going to look like or in a medical school to be able to adapt to these things? So this is common knowledge to them, just like molecular pathology now is becoming. They're pretty good. You know, they're pretty good at it. Well, you know. They learn it a lot in, 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 in residency programs, but we have to move it so that we have to shift it to the left and for them to be understanding this. How much bioinformatics do they have to learn as a resident? And we are going to clear part of their mind and part of their time to develop as a modern pathologist. We're good at cells whether they're circulating as single cells or whether they're part of a piece of tissue or if they're floating within urine or an acidic fluid, we're good at that. So we should be leading that effort to be able to, you know, in a, in a AI machine learning neural network manner to be able to say, this is the question that I want to know is ARV7 and for those who don't know what that means, is an AR variant that is resistant, usually seen in castrate resistant prostate cancer. Can we predict that from an image? From an image. From, for example, there's so much information in that cell in those beyond pixels. our eyes. Let's take advantage. And we are the ones that are going to benefit from it as well as the patient. That is uh, such a positive and encouraging note. Thank you. So if, if uh, I think we're, we're almost running out of time, and, but this episode deserves to be longer than usual. If you have to uh, make a prediction in 10 years, how these modern pathologists and future pathologists, if we do our job right and, and maintain the turf by adopting and embracing and de helping develop and training, uh, how do you see uh, the role of the pathologist or how the pathologist will be practicing in 10 years? All so on I, screens, all on computers. We'll, we'll be, I think 10 years from now, we'll be all on screens. Um, there'll, be a, there'll be a microscope or two available because we have to do QA on the slides and things like that. But we'll be doing basically the overwhelming majority of our work will be on screens. We will all have available to us machine learning tools, algorithms to help us for whatever our tasks are, depending on the specialty. 
atypical endometrial hyperplasia versus carcinoma. Uh, which cases should be profiled for um, whatever, for whatever it is, gene, gene of importance in that particular stage and disease. So this is where I think we will be. And at the same time, I think that we will have a much bigger part in the in in identifying and using the un, molecular underpinnings of tumors and cells and the microenvironment to include in our reports in an integrated report that is going to look very, very different from the one that we have. Um, and I think that's going to be our role. I think we're going to be different. Our skill sets are going to be different. Our tools are going to be different. And uh, if we do this right, we can be at the head of the table moving the field forward and pathology will have a long and distinguished career but very different than the pathologist of the 1800s, 1900s, 1950s, the year 2000. But we'll still be at the front of the table, I hope. That's, that's wonderful. On such a positive note again, and uh, uh, expectation that I'm sure you're going to be right, uh, knowing uh, you've been right uh, throughout my career, a lot of uh, things that you taught several of us and, and were uh, a leader, leader in adopting turn out to be true. So I'm pretty sure on this too. So thank you very much. It's been, uh, it's been wonderful. And personally, for me, it's a special uh, uh, treat and, and pleasure to have you on. I'm sure the audience uh, enjoyed it and we have to get you back to talk more about this stuff on, on our chat if you liked it George it's a pleasure and on a personal note please give Ruby a hug from me okay thank you very much wonderful right. so, have a good night good night any opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the views of modern pathology Springer Nature UAB or USCAP your ModPath chat host and scientific director is Dr. George Netto Producers are Christina Crow, Amber Jackson, Dr. Sarah Jang, and Dr. Catherine Ketchum. Technical direction is provided by Kaminsky Productions, music by Mitch Neubauer. Thanks to the authors, reviewers, and editors of Modern Pathology for making this podcast possible.